This morning we're back in our Revelation series. Last week was super exciting because we closed off the last section, which was the seven bowls, and everybody breathed a sigh of relief, right? The bowls of God's judgment are never comfortable, never easy to go through, but we're done with that section, and today we're moving on to the next section, and this section's titled The Seven Words of Triumph, which already sounds a lot better than the bowls of wrath, right? This is the sixth section in the book of Revelation out of eight sections, and that should signal something to you, and what that should tell you is that we're actually inching closer to the end of the series. I mean, who's sad about that? Oh, man. It's all there, my man. I'm sure everyone's like, yeah, man, you know, Revelation, I think we've been through this for a very long time, and we have. But the good news is we're getting there, but don't forget that this book contains a blessing. When we read everything that's in this book, we are blessed by it. It's not a book of doom and gloom. It's a book of hope. It's a book of victory. It's a book written to us as the church to remind us that no matter what goes on in this world, no matter how much these things come against us, that hurt us, that disappoint us, that cause discomfort in our lives, God is bigger, He's more powerful, and He's on the throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, love. And so let me set this a little bit of this, this section up a little bit for us. First of all, in all the previous sections that we've been through in Revelation, the seven things that we've discussed have been really easy to spot, right? Seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven visions, seven seals, seven churches. It's quite easy to pick up where you are in the book. From this point onwards, it doesn't become that easy to pick things up. The seven things that are actually mentioned in this particular section of Revelation are actually dealing with different aspects of this unfolding vision that God gives to John. And so it's not easy to pick up. I will tell you when we're transitioning from one to the other, but let me give you some examples. In Revelation 17, from verses 1 to 6, we're going to be exposed to a character that we'll discuss today. She is the harlot of Babylon. Another word for that that the Bible uses, not me, is prostitute. And the idea there is in seeing this character for who she is. God wants us to see her at face value. And then we move on to discovering, again, a little bit more about this woman. Now she's a city and her name is Babylon, Babylon the Great. And what we'll discover is that God wants to explain to us some of the things that we need to know about this city. And then the section moves on into the fact that this woman is going to fall. That happens in Revelations 18. From verse 4 to 20, we'll be reminded as the church that this woman and her sort of temptations and the way she seduces the world needs to be avoided at all costs. Not just for the unbelievers in this world, but speaking specifically to us as a church. And we'll touch on some of that this morning. In Revelations 18, verse 21 to 24, we will see that this woman will be destroyed forever. Then in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 19, we'll experience the joy that comes with seeing this character destroyed once and for all. And then at the end of the section, we will understand God's big plan because his plan was never for Babylon to rule. It has always been for his bride, the church, to take its place in glory and to co-rule with Christ as we move into eternity. And what you'll notice is that this section clearly signals a turn of events in the book of Revelation. I mean, make no mistake, throughout this book, we've discovered that God is going to overcome. We know that God conquers in the end. We know that Jesus is the winner, that he is victorious. But from this moment onwards, what we start to get a glimpse of is how God is going to deal with all of his enemies. We start to see the things that are going to happen to all of these forces that have set themselves up against the God of the Bible. The dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, Babylon, and those that carry the mark of the beast will forever be judged. And what will become undeniable is the fact that the gospel message has been progressing from the very beginning of time. You see, the whole book of Revelation is a beautiful story of the gospel. 
It started in the seven churches. Remember, Jesus walking amongst these lampstands telling us that the church without Jesus is not the church. The gospel message is about Christ. It's only about him. It's only ever been about him. And that's our message. We move into the seven seals. What do we see? A man riding on a white horse. His name is Jesus, faithful and true. And what does he bring into the world? The gospel message. But guess what, friends? The red horse is behind him, the red horse of persecution, suffering, and in some cases, even death. But it tells us one thing, that no matter what we face as the church, no matter how hard this will be, this world may be, the gospel will always prevail. The seven trumpets took the gospel message to a whole new level. Why? Because it reminded the world that it turned its back on him, that there's still time to repent. The gospel brings people to the point of repentance and the invitation, friends, is open to everyone. The seven visions told us that the gospel message is eternal. It doesn't just exist in the here and now. It's been there from the very beginning, from the moment Satan was cast out of heaven. And even before that, before the foundation of the world, God's plan was always Jesus Christ. He's not plan B. He's not some type of emergency plan that God had to come up with in the end. From the beginning of time, from the dawn of creation, Jesus was always meant to be the plan that would bring you and I into a place of salvation. And then what happens? The seven bowls of God's wrath. The trumpets have sounded. People have ignored it. And we realize that the gospel message is a gospel message of grace. But make no mistake, friends, when grace is rejected, grace becomes wrath. And that brings us to this morning where we're going to look at the harlot, the prostitute, the beast, and ultimately the hope that we have as we realize that Christ himself will triumph over all of them. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 17. We're going to read this morning from verses 1. I'm hoping we'll get to verse 11. I don't know if we will. In fact, I was hoping we'd get to verse 18, but you're lucky that we're not going to go all that way because we will be here till tomorrow. What we're going to do as we go through, as you know, is we're going to unpack all these verses. I'll make some points, but we're going to go through them sort of verse by verse, sometimes more than one verse at a time. But I want us to get to the nuts and bolts of what's being said. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is no power in anyone's preaching unless it is filled with your anointing. And so, Lord, I pray more than anything else that there won't be clever words yet today or clever statements or you know, bumper stickers that we can take home and put on our cars, but more than anything else, Lord, that your anointing would be present here today, that your word would be empowered by your spirit, Lord, and that even though we're talking about things that sometimes are complicated to understand, that you would bring us clarity today. And more than that, Lord, you would bring us something that we can execute on, that we can do something with in our lives, Lord. This is not about information, Lord. I pray that today would be about revelation for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a bumper sticker already, see? Point number one for us this morning, worldliness and all of its systems are ultimately the target of God's wrath. God is against all of those things. If you haven't realized it yet in Revelation, surprise, God doesn't like any of that stuff. Verse one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. If you do have young ears in here, understand this morning that there are some innuendos that are going to come out of this text, so just be mindful of that, but it is Scripture. There's a few things happening in the opening verse here of this section. The first thing is, and all the students are laughing when I say that, you see, it's crazy. The first thing that's happening is we encounter this angel, right? An angel that ultimately was one of the angels that delivered the bowls of God's wrath. Remember those seven angels? Well, one of these angels is the one that comes to John and takes him on this next part of the vision. 
And what that does for us is it links the two sections together. The bowls of God's wrath and the judgment of the great harlot are actually part of the same thing. It's just a different picture of it. What we saw last week was how humanity is directly and indirectly judged by God and his wrath, his wrath is poured out. Right? Indirectly through nature, creation, the earth, the sea, the land, the heavens. And indirectly through God's agencies of destruction. When I say his agencies, the agencies that exist, the enemy and how they'll bring destruction and wrath upon us. But this morning, what we're going to find is that those very agencies that were executing God's wrath are now going to face His wrath, and it will be severe. The other thing that this text tells us is that this particular lady is seated on many waters. Now, there's an important point that's being communicated to us by telling us that she sits on many waters. She's not a surfer. She doesn't like to go to Lake Travis and fish. That's not what the text is telling us. The text, by saying many waters, is speaking to us about something in particular. It's speaking to us about civilization. If you think about it, all the greatest cities, the ancient cities of old, all developed along major waterways, right? London on the Thames, Rome on the Tiber River, Mumbai on the Ganges, the Corinth or the city of Corinth itself was a city that was a seaport. And the point that it's making here is that this woman that sits on many waters is actually a representation of what we would call today cities. You see, cities throughout Scripture have always been used to represent the depravity of man. I don't know if you know this, but when we went through our Genesis series, the first person to ever build a city in the Bible was a man named Cain. Now, if you remember about Cain, if you know your children's, uh, children's school material, Cain killed his brother, Abel. Cain wasn't a nice guy. And his son Lamech took it to another level. They developed the first civilizations. And what they were ultimately saying is going from an agrarious people or a gregarious people where we would rely on God to provide for our needs. We are now going to rely on mankind to come together, build these empires where we can trust in our own strength, trust in our own power, trust in our own ability. These cities, by the way, are still known for that today. Some of the cities in this world we automatically think of as places that are filled with depravity. Think of places like Amsterdam and the Red Light District. What does that exist for? Does it exist to edify children? Does it exist to make women more beautiful and make them know how valuable they are? No, these things exist to show the depravity of man. Las Vegas for many years in this country was called what? Sin City. The cities that mankind creates always end up turning into an idol to themselves. And the worst thing about it is it's an idol to wickedness, friends. The lady that sits on many waters speaks about the depravity of man. The city that we're going to talk about today, Babylon itself, was seated in between two rivers. That's what Mesopotamia means. It means between two rivers. Babylon, the same city that was set up by a man called Nimrod. Nimrod, who you'll read about in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, set that city up. He's the same guy that some people believe is an offspring of the Genesis 6 rebellion that happened. Remember when the sons of God came down from heaven and they decided to leave their position in heaven with God and slept with the daughters of man? Well, they produced this weird half kind of offspring, half divine, half human. They called him the Nephilim. Kelsey's thinking, Marco can't do one week without talking about the Nephilim. Nimrod was believed to be one of these people, half man, half divine. If you don't believe me, go read the Epic of Gilgamesh and you'll find out that Nimrod was not a great guy. He built this city. He's the same guy that decided that one day it would be a good idea to build a tower that reached the heavens. The Tower of Babel. Now that wasn't just a big building. It was a tower to show God that they didn't need him anymore because mankind had figured it out. They would worship false gods, the idols of their own making, and they could become like God themselves. Cities present wickedness in all its shapes and forms. 
even our own city of Austin. You'll find it if you look for it. Verse 2, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. You know, the fact that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with this prostitute tells us that wilderness is not just an issue that is purely uh, assigned to the prostitute herself or Babylon or the harlot. It tells us that the kings of the earth, those in power, those with influence, those who have the ability to influence other people are part of the problem. It tells us that the kings of the earth like to get drunk on her wine. Why? Because they want power, they want control, they want greed. And so the true aspect of wilderness is it's not just driven by this evil force. We as human beings love to participate with this force. We love to get involved with it. We enter into this adulterous relationship. We are seduced by her wilderness. And if you think about it, wilderness is seductive, right? It promises all these things that a successful life is about power and control. It's about being promoted. It's about having all the things that we want. And so the kings of the earth inflict on others what they want them to do, and they force humanity to follow in their footsteps. We'll talk about this a bit later. But you want to know a great example of what this is, is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel followed the one true God, right? That was their king. And then over time, they became a little bit weird. They didn't want judges anymore. Now they wanted their own kings of their own. And so they developed all of these kings. And what did those kings do? By and large, most kings that you will read about in First and Second Kings were terrible kings. There are a few exceptions to the rule. But the Bible always says, and so and so was born. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just like his father Jeroboam. The kings of the earth lead us to destruction, friends. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2 says this, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom. In other words, Hosea, go marry a prostitute and have children of whoredom. Why? For the land commits the whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And you know what? The kings lead the way. We place so much trust in politics, in power, in people that we think are going to fix things. There's only one person that can fix this world and his name is Jesus. It's not the government. They will fail you, friends. And even those who start with good intentions, believe me, absolute power corrupts absolutely, friends. Now, I'm not saying don't trust anyone and look at politicians and think, oh, you're evil and you're one of the kings and you're destroying my life. But my point is this. If we want hope, it's in Jesus. The second point I have for us this morning, and these might not actually make sense anymore, but wilderness is attractive, but it's deceptive. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The wilderness is important here in this text. Wilderness in, this te- in Revelations means two things. One, it can mean protection. The nation of Israel was redeemed from Egypt, taken into the wilderness, just like the lady who was bearing a child who ultimately was representing Jesus was protected from the enemy. But in this context, the wilderness means the places in which the agency has the power to operate. If you think of the Day of Atonement, a holiday separated by Jewish people, what happened? They, sa- they sacrificed two animals. Well, actually, one animal was really sacrificed, a calf. And what they would do is they would sacrifice a calf, and they would pay for the sins of Israel once a year. And then they would go and pray over this goat, and they would pray all the sins of Israel into the goat. And then what would they do? They would send the goat outside the camp. In other words, the sins have been atoned for in the camp where Jesus lives, but outside the camp, the wilderness is for Azazel. Go there. That's where sin belongs. It doesn't belong with us. And here we are in the same wilderness. 
And we know it because the beast is in this picture. This woman's not just riding a donkey. She's not riding a unicorn. She's riding a beast. And this beast has names on its head that oppose God, that are blasphemous towards God. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abomination and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Unfortunately, wilderness likes to dress up. This woman's dressed in scarlet and in purple. She seems to be extremely wealthy, right? She's got pearls and she's got gold. And what's she holding in her hand? A golden cup. Who drank from golden cups? Kings. People of power, people of influence drink from those cups. Why? Because that's what you would expect them to drink from. And let me tell you, I don't know anyone in this room, maybe gold's not your thing, but there is no one that says, listen, don't give me a bar of gold today. You know, this reality is that the world puts its picture out there that it's very, very appealing for us to say no to. We all get enticed by the world. Whether it's the prestige that comes with following the things of the world. Whether it's the comfort that the world wants us to have. Whether it's the temptation to licentious living that we all can't do without. In my case, it was drug addiction, friends. That's what the world held out to me. And you know what the thing about addiction is? Any addiction is it looks appealing at the beginning. Nobody goes and becomes a drug addict and thinks to themselves, man, by the time I'm done with this, I'll have robbed everyone. I'll have tried to commit suicide. I'll be hanging from a, from a, ceiling, a ceiling in my room. I'll slip my wrist in a bathtub. I'll probably end up in jail and I might kill some people along the way. Nobody does that. Why? Because all we see is this beautiful veneer of this beautiful woman that has all of this seduction. And she says, yeah, take what I have. Drink from it. You can have it freely. But make no mistake, friends. This woman is very deceptive. And on her forehead, verse 5, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon is a symbol of man's arrogance. It's the symbol of pride of life. It's the symbol of everything that stands in opposition to the king and his kingdom. And you might be thinking, but you know the cool thing about all this is? Babylon doesn't exist anymore. In fact, if you go to Babylon, it's a heap of ruins today. But Babylon exists, friends. It exists all around us. It exists in between us. It exists in the frame of our existence. It exists on the computers that our children play games on. It exists in the movies that we watch. It exists in the work that we go to. It exists everywhere. The temples of Baal are scattered around the city in every place and in every corner. Because just like Babylon's alter ego, a prostitute, she is relentless in attempting to seduce us. And she'll offer us all the things that our flesh naturally desires. And you know what pains me the most about this? Is that Babylon doesn't just affect us as individuals. It doesn't just affect our children or the next generation. Let me tell you something. Babylon has invaded the church. It's the church that, in its effort to become more accommodating to the world, becomes just like the world. Tozer said this, he said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Friends, we don't have to look far, and I'm not saying this to judge or condemn any other church in this nation or in this world, but let me tell you, friends, if we're not careful, we can become a church where Babylon lives. We can become a church that on its altar is Baal, and before you even realize it, you'll be in trouble, friends. And my heart is to protect us from that, friends. Because guess what? Listen to what this woman does. In verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
as attractive as Babylon is, as much as she wants to seduce her, she gets drunk on drinking the blood of God's saints. And every time Babylon invades the church and he wrecks another marriage, he destroys another person's life, he shuts down a building. You know what he does? He gets drunk on the blood of the saints. And there's warnings here, friends, that we need to hear. It's a warning to us as a church that salvation involves separating ourselves from the world. I know in this progressive Christian world that we live in, nobody wants to hear that anymore, right? Here's another quote from Toza. I love it. The horrible travesty we have in America today is a Christianity without holiness. Now let me say this to you, friends. Don't mistake holiness for religion. Don't mistake holiness for self-righteousness. That's not what we're talking about here. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did everything because we couldn't. But here's the thing about holiness. When the Bible tells me that beholding the glory of law of the Lord, I am transformed from one degree of glory to the next, then that tells me the state that I end in should be better than the state that I began in. And this hyper-grace theology that we love to hear in the world, where you can do whatever you want because Jesus loves you regardless. I mean, Jesus died anyway. He paid the price. That's not the kingdom of God, friends. We have to be separate from the world. We have to separate ourselves from the world. Not in judgment, not in condemnation, not throwing stones at them, because believe me, they'll be throw bigger stones at us. But separate and say, this is not the life God has called us to live. We've been called to live separate. James says this, if you don't believe me, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, wish Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot be any clearer than that, friends. And so when the world invades the church, we need to push the world out of the church. Our job is not to become the world. It's to be the kingdom of God. The second thing that this text warns us of, and this may be really hard for us to understand, but what this text implies is people that are against, in opposition, don't like Jesus, don't want to hear from him, take pleasure, take pleasure, enjoy watching Christians die. You think that sounds very dramatic. Do you know in Rome, they've developed this thing called the circus. Do you know what a circus is? Their circuses weren't like the circuses you've been to, bro. No Cirque du Soleil in Rome. There weren't little fuzzy bunnies running around and clowns juggling things. Their circuses comprised of an amphitheater in which they would send the Christians out, tie them to a stake, and release the beasts. Why? So they could watch them die. Now that's dramatic, right? We don't do that in this day and age, but don't we? We do it all the time. People love to see Christianity fail. They take pleasure in it. Now don't go fight the world. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We fight this fight on our knees, friends. The last thing it warns us of as a church is that we have to understand that as a result of the world taking pleasure in seeing the kingdom of God fail, persecution is a reality we all have to live with. Opposition, discomfort, being uncomfortable at times is something that's going to happen to us. And believe me, friends, if you've ever preached the gospel to anybody, you'll know how uncomfortable that feels. Maybe you've been at the hands of somebody persecuting you for your faith. I think all of us have a testimony about that at some level or some shape and form. Whether it's as simple as your family rejecting you, your friends walking away from you, or maybe it's more severe like the believers in Iran today who are being killed because they call themselves Christian. Whatever it is, persecution will come. But guess what? We have nothing to fear. I say that because as we continue to read Revelation, what is going to become even increasingly clearer is worldly systems. The wickedness of this world are doomed. 
There is only one kingdom that is eternal, and that is not the kingdom of the world. It certainly is not Babylon. It is the kingdom of God. And when we're in that, we will always be victorious, whether it's this side of eternity or the next. Third point. Amen. Worldliness and the beast are closed, are closely aligned. Third point. Verse 6 of Revelation 17, the second half of it says, When I saw, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? And this is not John who's marveling. I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The angel asks John, why do you marvel? Another way of putting that is, John, what is it that is astounding you so much about this picture? Why are you so surprised? You see, what John is seeing in this vision has already been communicated to him before. He's seeing it in a very different way now. The beast that's mentioned in this text, because it has seven heads and it has ten horns, is the same beast that we met in Revelations chapter 13. Remember that beast, the beast that rises out of the sea. What does that beast represent? It represents the systems in opposition to God's people. Whether that's governments, whether that's institutions, whether that's secret societies, whether that's you know anything that you can possibly put your finger on, anything that's in opposition to God's people, that's what this beast represents, and it is alive, friends. And remember, we don't have to guess who this beast is. It's not one particular individual. It's not one particular thing. The beast has, and you'll see this, is and will be. It's always been here. One could say, from this close alignment that both the prostitute and the beast have together, is that in some sense, seduction and temptation in this world is fueled by the systems of this world. And I just think to myself, well, we see it all around us, right? Just think of the laws that some governments pass. Whether that is lowering the age of consent for sexual promiscuity, right? Is that helpful or harmful? Whether it's uh, teaching our children as young as four years old in the schools about all the differences within sexuality and how they need to discover their own sexuality and that there's multiple genders and nobody really knows. Is that helpful or is that harmful? Right the way through to laws that are passed across the world about abortion. Something that is heinous in God's eyes. It's murder, friends. There is no denying it. The nation of Israel sacrificed their children at the altar of Molech and God was displeased. In fact, that's one of the things that causes God to bring them under the judgment He ultimately does. But we have systems in this world who are promoting it. They're putting it in front of our kids and they're not even telling us about it. Do you know as a parent in America, you have less rights today over your child than you've ever had. They can do things to your kid that you don't even know about. Because it's not your business. It's my business to raise your child as the government, and I'll tell them what's right. Now, I'm not preaching against the government. I'm telling you what the agenda here is. The fourth point is that wilderness is going to fail, and so will the beast. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Not going to like... Port Aransas on vacation, or maybe Rotan, because that's really beautiful. It's going to destruction, friends. John says something interesting. Or it's not John, it's the angel. He says the beast was and is, is not, and is about to rise. And it's this threefold description about the beast that communicates some important truths to us. And in fact, if you think about it, Satan has always wanted to be Jesus, right? right. So think about Jesus, right? Jesus was, right? He was on this earth proclaiming the powerful gospel for three years on this earth. What happens to Jesus after that? He is not, right? Why? Because he's persecuted. He's put on a cross and he dies. But ultimately, what do we know? Jesus was rose, well, he rose from the dead, right? 
The Satan's doing exactly what Jesus did, but he's doing it in the opposite way around. He wants to be just like Jesus. But you see, Jesus lives forevermore. Satan goes to eternal destruction. That's the difference between the two. But this statement says that just like the church in John's time had already experienced persecution, we in our lifetime will experience persecution too. In John's time, by the time he wrote this letter, Nero, who was one of the fiercest opponents of the church, had died. And so the beast was gone. Right? In our case, who is it? Sometimes in our lives, and this is something we have to understand, the beast is not means that we will see victories. We will see these agencies of destruction destroyed, friends. We will see them crumble, but make no mistake, the beast will come again. Opposition is never going to end. It will come again in different guises and in different forms. And while that may be an uncomfortable thought, again, we know the outcome. Jesus wins. In fact, I believe it's at that moment when opposition to God's people and to the kingdom is at its worst, friends, that we will see the decisive and final victory that Jesus will bring. And I believe that will happen at his second coming. The fifth point for us this morning, worldliness will deceive the lost, but will fail on God's people. Let me explain this a little bit. Verse 8, the second half says, And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. What this text is making clear is that there are two types of people that live in this world. Not five, not ten, not different ways to God. There are two types of people. There are those who are in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. Just, it's just the way it is. I'm sorry if it offends you, but that's what we see. And so those that are not in the kingdom, those whose names have not been written in the book of life, will be deceived by the beast. They get drunk on her seduction, right? But that means, conversely, that those of us who do and find themselves in the book of life are not going to be deceived by the beast. And so maybe let me explain to you what I believe the book of life represents, because maybe that's a question that we need to answer this morning. The book of life for me represents two things. The first thing is it represents the names of every single believer in this world, past, present, and future. The Bible says that this book was written before the foundation of the world. It tells me that you and I have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that he knows every single head on our hair. Or every hair, no, every hair on our head. And so that tells me that God knows that we are going to be his children. Now you might say, but Marco, hang on a second. I played a part in my salvation because I made a decision to follow Jesus. I remember the day distinctly. I remember the day I got saved distinctly. And I agree with you. We do make a conscious decision to follow Christ. I believe it. But guess what? In my experience, when I look back on my life, what I realized the most is it wasn't me chasing God. God was always chasing me. Now, I don't want to get into predestination and free will. That's another discussion for another time. We've actually got a great piece of work and a great handout on that where you can decide what you want. But what the Bible is clear is that before the foundation of the world, these names were written in the book. These people were secure. Now, you might be here today and you might not even believe in Jesus, but maybe you are going to. And guess what? God knew that already. The second thing that the book of life speaks to, and Mark mentioned it this morning, is reward. In the book of Esther, there's this beautiful picture of King Artaxerxes, whatever his name is, that guy. And he has this registry and he calls to his scribes. He says, bring me the registry of the kingdom, the citizenship document. Like America, there's probably a, some spreadsheet somewhere in America that has a list of all the citizens, right? Some people just get on, I mean, you can get on that list quite easily. I mean, I'm South African, just so you know. 
My point is that there is this list of people that belong to the kingdom and nothing and no one can change it. Those are our citizens. But next to the list, the king says, bring me the list of their citizens and the list that shows their memorable deeds. In other words, what they've done for the king and the kingdom. Show me all the people that I need to reward because they've been good and faithful stewards. Now, I want to make this clear. I've already said it. The church can be not deceived but can be distracted by the world. You see, just because we can't be deceived by the devil doesn't mean the devil doesn't distract us. And so if your reward is a component of what you do for the Lord in terms of honoring Him, following His will, desiring Him more, not salvation. Reward is not salvation, friends. God saves us. Reward is what do I get when I get to heaven? Remember in the beginning of Revelation, the seven churches, what does Jesus say to every single church? To those who overcome, I will grant them blah, 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 blah. Right? Not blah, blah, blah. I will give them the crown of righteousness. I will give you a pure white gown. I will give you the white stone. I will give you this gift, this reward, this inheritance. One one star in heaven shines brighter than the other, the Bible says. And so when we are distracted by the world, we are losing our ability to earn a reward. We will get to heaven, friends, believe me, because Jesus died for that. But we're also here for our rewards. The sixth point and final point, I'm going to close soon, is that worldliness and its systems will come and go. But again, their end is always the same. Verse 9. The angel says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So John's now given the second phase of this vision. This would be part two. And we're we're not going to finish part two, but let me tell you. He gets given this interpretation. The vision is now being interpreted for him. And it starts with him understanding that this seven-headed beast represents seven mountains. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, what does the mountains mean? What are these mountains? And there's a lot of ways to interpret this. I want to be honest. I mean, again, like with Revelation, people can go all sorts of crazy places with these seven mountains. But I want to speak to two things. One can have its most simplistic interpretation. In other words, like John, he understood what the city of Rome looked like. Rome was built on seven hills. So again, it's representing wilderness, right? So the seven mountains are wilderness. Another thing that I want to talk about this morning, but this is just something I want to give you information on more than anything else, is that there is this new theology or new teaching in the church called the Seven Mountain Mandate. Okay, it was developed in 1975. It's certainly not old. Nobody else in the history of the world believed this, but the church today does. And what the Seven Mountain Mandate says is that these seven mountains in Revelation 17 represent seven spheres of influence, like government, military, arts, education, media, Family life. And what that teaching tells us is that in order for us to be able to win this war, we have to find positions of authority in those different spaces. Now, I want to say this to you this morning. I've got no challenge with people finding positions of influence. I have no challenge with Christians fighting the fight that they've been called to fight in the marketplace. But the challenge that I have and the warning I'm giving you this morning is that there is no direct command in Scripture for Christians to find a place of influence. There's no way where Jesus says, for you to win and for the devil to be defeated, I need you to be the next president. I want you to be the next politician. I want you to become the next military general, whatever it is. No, you know what he says? He says, there's two things I need you to do. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the only commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. And then he says, go make disciples. Matthew chapter 28. That's what the church is called to do. And so while we might want to be in positions of authority, that's not a command from God. The other problem with it is that it drifts very close to something called dominion theology. Dominion theology is Old Testament law brought into the New Testament. Abraham was given a commandment to go and take his inheritance. The nation of Israel was told to go and defeat the Canaanites. 
And I have no problem with us taking ground back from the enemy, but here's the challenge I have, is that if you believe that the seven mountain mandate is to be true, then the challenge is, is that in order for Jesus to come back, we have to actually take power in government as the church, and we have to rule from the front, and then Jesus will come back. Friends, let me tell you this. The Jesus that I serve doesn't need me to be the president for him to come back. He's on his own clock. He's on his own schedule, and when it's time, he'll come back. And I'm just trying to free you from pressure because we think it's up to us to change the world. No, it's not. It's up to Jesus in us to change the world. Sorry. Verse 10. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other. One has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And so the mountains aren't just mountains anymore. You see, and that sort of messes up the, the seven mountains mandate a little bit because it's not just mountains. It's now kings. And five of them are gone. That's what the text says. Five of these kings have fallen. What does that represent? The ancient cities, civilizations that were against God's people, Babylon, Syria, or not Syria, Persia, Assyria, um, Greek, Greece, and ultimately Rome, right? In John's age, the five that are gone are those Roman empires, except John is living with one that currently is. And that was a guy called Domitian, another Roman empire. And let me tell you something. We as the church today exist in a Romanesque structure. We live in Greek and Roman democracy structures. We live in a Roman world. Everything we have today is based off that type of leadership. And so we're still operating in this type of environment. But there is a beast to come. There is a beast to come which we would normally associate with the Antichrist regime. And the Bible's warning us that there's going to be coming another one. And this one's going to be mean too. And like all the other kings that went before him, he doesn't have your goodness and your sort of prosperity in mind. He has your destruction in mind. Verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eight. But it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. You see, behind all of these empires, behind all of these regimes, behind all of these political powers, behind all these influences that want to destroy the church, is the beast. He is the king. He's always been the king of them. He's always ruled them. And behind the beast is the dragon. The dragon is in charge, friends. And so he's not a distinct king. He's in all of it. He's always been there, trying to kill us, trying to hurt us, trying to bring us down, trying to invade the church, trying to mess us up, friends. But there's good news because this verse ends with a promise. The promise is that the entire system will be destroyed. Babylon, Rome, the woman on the beast, everything that paganism and worldliness represents is destined to end. Why? Because Jesus will overcome. And that tells me that our mandate today as the church is to overcome too. And so let me close with this question. Because this is a real question and it's hard. The band can come up. How do we overcome the temptation that the world's offer us? How do we overcome the world and its systems? How do we as the church stand strong? How do we make sure that we don't get tempted and deceived and fall into all of these things? Jesus told us. In Matthew 16 and verse 24, and I really am closing with this verse. It says, And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's the challenge. We've convinced a generation of people that there are no more crosses to carry. Because all the world wants and all God wants for you is for you to be healthy, wealthy and happy, right? There's an entire generation of young people that have been brought up under a gospel that tells them there is no cross to carry. 
Do what you want, say what you want, be who you are, let your truth be your own truth, because it doesn't really matter, there is no finite truth, God doesn't exist in the way that you used to be taught he did. But when I read this, Jesus tells me that we have to pick up our cross. The second challenge with the way this verse, or the second thing that this verse sort of brings to my attention, is either we don't tell people there's a cross, or we make the cross so heavy that people cannot carry the cross themselves. And so what the church does is either gives them nothing or it gives them everything. We heap burdens on people's heads. We tell them you're not good enough. You're not religious enough. You're not right enough. You don't come to church enough. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't tithe enough. And you're clearly not of God. You know, there's no precedent for us being in a position to carry our own cross. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus himself couldn't carry his own cross? He couldn't take the cross to Golgotha. What happened? Simon of Cyrene shows up. He helps him carry his cross. You and I have never been intended by God to carry our own cross. When he says you need to deny yourself, what he's saying is stop believing you can do it without me. Denying yourself is not about self-control. It's not about willpower. It's not about being the best Christian you can be. It's about saying, Lord, I'm hopeless without you. I can't do this without you. Only when Jesus picks up your cross can you carry your cross. Friends, you cannot carry your own cross. David Wilkerson says this. He says, before you take up your cross, be ready to face a moment of truth. Be ready to experience a crisis by which you will learn to deny your self-will, your self-righteousness, your self-sufficiency, and your self-authority. Because you can only follow me as a true disciple when you freely admit you can do nothing in your own strength. You cannot overcome sin through your own willpower. Your temptations cannot be overcome by your self-efforts alone. That's what picking up our cross means, friends. And so overcoming the world has less to do with our ability to do so, but everything to do with His ability, friends. Babylon's a scary place, and you cannot defeat her on your own. But we're not on our own. We have Jesus in us. Christ in me is the hope of glory, friends. And if we take what Tozer said earlier, how we overcome the world is we allow the Christ in us to shine brighter than the culture around us. That's how Babylon gets defeated. Can I ask you to stand? This morning as I was driving and I was praying and I was asking the Lord what He wanted me to do, I didn't have an ending for this message to be honest. And the Lord put in my heart a song. And so I phoned up JR and Tim and I said, listen, I'm sorry to ruin your plans for the day, but I'm going to ask you to sing a special song at the end. The song is called Chain Breaker. You see, I think some of us in this room, and I include myself in that, have been chained by the world. I think the systems of this world have got us in some sense or some fashion. Maybe you're struggling with something right now in the world that has got you addicted. Maybe it is addiction. Maybe it's not the type of addiction that other people would generally know of. Whatever it is, the world has got a handle in your life. Perhaps it's the, the chain of religiosity that's got you today. Maybe you think you're better, one, better than everybody in this world. Maybe you think that you're more deserving than everyone in this world. Maybe you think because you believe in Jesus that somehow you become the arbiter of truth. That needs to be broken today too. And so I want us to sing this song. I'm not going to ask you to come up here, but I think if you need to... Find God in this moment and remind yourself of some eternal truths. That there is power in the name of Jesus. That He can break every chain. Let us declare that this morning. And let's break the chains in our lives. Let's break the chains of our families. Let's break the chains over everything that we do. And declare His name and His name alone. Let's sing.